Good evening. Let's uh, turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, and this is our last message, the book of Jonah. It's been, it's been a good time um, looking at this book and seeing all the things that took place in this narrative. And uh, we want to start reading um, from uh, chapter 3, verse 10, and to the end of the book. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Heavenly Father, um, thank you for this book and the lessons that we have learned through this book and the principles that it teaches us, but more importantly, for this historical account and how you did a massive work of repentance and revival in Nineveh through one man who was disobedient, but yet even in him you did a work of repentance. And it gives us hope that you can use anyone whom you choose and you can bring bring revival in any place at any time. So, Lord, we pray not only that you would do that in our place and time and through us, but help us to learn from this book, from these lessons, apply them to our lives. Please be with us now as we look into um, this passage and the end of this book, and I pray that you would be with me now as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, 
There's a question that comes up in this passage as I consider this passage and what's going on in the life of Jonah at this time. And that question is this. What do you do when life doesn't go the way you expected it? Or more precisely, how do you feel and what are your immediate responses when life doesn't go your way? Do you tend to get frustrated, angry, worried, depressed, to despair? Do you run away and hide? Do you turn and fight? What's your normal response? And uh, we do have behaviors, we do have habits, we do have personalities and unique responses to the circumstances and trials of life. And, and primarily when things don't go our way. And, and all of these emotions, these, these uh, reactions, these actions are indicators of what's in our hearts and what we think about ourselves and God. They, they, they point to sins of unbelief, uh, sins of pride, sins of selfishness and wrong views of God. And it makes me think of, um, you know, not too long ago I, I, I heard... Uh, a pastor saying that throughout his years in ministry, he had realized that you don't really see a person's level of spiritual maturity until you see how they respond when they don't get what they want. Then you really see where they're at. And and, and in a sense, this is what is happening in the life of Jonah here. As we see how he responds when he doesn't get what he wants we see his level of spiritual immaturity. And, and it's, it's comical in the sense that he seems to act like an immature child or teenager. Um, however, sin has no age limits. <laughs> you know, we can see and we can look at children and teenagers, and um, if we're honest with ourselves, we're, we're not that much different. Um, in the way we see our besetting sins and, and how we get upset when we don't get our way. But oftentimes, we, we're just better at hiding it. And we get better at hiding our responses as we age. Hopefully, we grow and we mature and we're, we become more settled and uh, are able to respond well of life, and, and especially when we don't get our way. Um, but in this passage, it shows us not only how Jonah responded when he didn't get his way, but how God responds to Jonah when he didn't respond rightly to his providence, to his work of repentance and revival. Uh, we see God response to Jonah. And in a sense, God is taking Jonah to class. He's taking Jonah to school in this passage, in the end of the book. And in this passage, we see three means of God's instruction to Jonah concerning his character and his providence, because this is ultimately what, what God is doing here. He's trying to set Jonah right. He's trying to 
Elohim, um, his purpose, his providence, his character. Why Jonah shouldn't be responding the way he is. And, and it's interesting how God confronts Jonah. And there's three ways he does this. First, he does it through his creation. Uh, the, the first means of God's instruction to Jonah is his creation. And we see this in, in verses 6 to 8. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it may be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God uses his own creation to confront Jonah. And, and the first aspect of that creation is a plant. And maybe you have a note in your Bible. Maybe you have a study Bible that has more extensive notes. Maybe you have read more about this at some commentators, some people kind of... Um, Contemplate what this plant actually is. That it sprung up in a night, as we would later see. That it, it grew quickly and it became this shade over Jonah's head. But that's not the point. It's not the point at all. It doesn't matter that there, there would be a fast-growing plant or that God just created a plant out of nothing. The, the point is the lesson. And it's interesting because that, that, that plant, the fact that God brings up a plant to create shade for Jonah shows his provision for Jonah, his provision for providing, for, for giving him shade, for giving him relief in that place. Even as he went off, as he stormed off out of the city, and didn't go back home, but he went in the opposite direction to the east, and, and probably because there was higher terrain, higher ground, which would allow him uh, a, a view of the city, and, and he was hoping against hope that maybe God would, in fact, destroy the city. And so we see this in, in, in verses, uh, verse 5, that he storms out of the city, east, he's, he's pouting, he goes up, probably higher terrain, probably up on a hill, and he makes a booth for himself there, and it says that under it in the shade to see what would become of the city, and, and yet, even though it says that he sat under it in the shade, God still appoints a plant to be a shade over his head, showing that the shade that Jonah created for himself was it was flimsy. He created a booth, which means a, a, a shelter, a lean-to, um, probably some sticks that he could find somewhere and, and make some sort of lean-to or, or kind of like a tent or teepee-type structure that he could sit in. And it was inadequate. And, and this, the fact that God brings up this plant, it, it shows his, his mercy it shows his provision for Jonah. E e even though Jonah is disobedient, even though he's angry, even though his attitude, everything about him is utterly sinful right now. But, jo but, but God still provides for him, still provides this shade that is adequate and shows Jonah's inadequacy to provide for himself. And, and it's interesting because... Jonah 
was exceedingly glad because of the plan. This, and it says in verse 6 that God appointed this plant to save him from his discomfort. So whatever sort of shelter Jonah had made, he was still uncomfortable. He was still, still hot. But yet this plant provided for what he could not provide for himself. And it, it just reminds me, you know, throughout my time um, in the military and in life, and, and I like to do things outdoors, I like to hike, um, I like to go backpacking, and I appreciate shade. <laughs> and like most of you on a hot day, and, and, and so much so that um, oftentimes when I'm hiking or backpacking, I, I have a habit of leapfrogging, especially on hot days, leapfrogging from a point of shade to another point of shade. <laughs> Especially, you know, as I've, I've backpacked in the Sierra Nevadas and the higher elevation you get, the more intense the sun is. And as you're going up the mountain or whatever, you, you, you find these points of shade and whatever it is. And, and that shade is a refuge. It's a refuge of comfort from this sun. And it's, it's such a, a, a refuge that it's, It provokes that, that, that sigh of relief from the heat of the sun. And, and we all appreciate a good shade tree. And it's interesting, especially as you go through farm country and you see, uh, you see the fields, and especially you see this in bigger fields, that many farmers would plant a shade tree in the middle of the field so that in the middle of the day when they're working, they can take a rest. And under the shade. And this is, this shade, you get that sense that this is refreshing. This is a refuge. And God had appointed it for him to show him this. Almost as if God himself is a shade and a refuge for us. But then he does something else. Because he starts off with this mercy, this mercy by way of a plant, which could only be explained by God doing it, because it was, it was big enough. He did have some shade, but it wasn't adequate, and so this plant was big enough that it, it had to be a miracle. It could only be explained by a miracle, and so God appoints this plant, this miracle showing his provision, showing his mercy to Jonah, and then in, in verse 7, we see this. It says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And, and it's, it's interesting because it's as dawn came. And it must, have been, it must have been a hot time of year. Um, one of those times in... Desert where it's nice and cool until the sun comes up, until the sun, you know, breaks the horizon, and, and you can just feel the change in temperature. And so immediately, once the sun comes up, and and, and once you feel that it's going to be a hot day, and oftentimes in the summer we can go to hot places, 
and we see that, that the dawn is, is nice and cool until that sun comes up, and immediately, once it comes up over the horizon, we know it's going to be a hot day. And, and that's exactly when God appoints this worm to attack this plant so that, that any, any hope of, well, at least I got this shade, is just broken and crushed. And, and what's interesting about this worm is it's almost in a, in a direct contrast to the plant. The plant was huge and so, so huge that it could only be explained by a miracle. And, and then now you got a worm, which Jonah may not have even seen. Until later, I mean, we, we, we assume, and rightly, that Jonah wrote this book. So certainly, he, he either saw the worm or later on, through divine inspiration, he wrote about the worm. But the worm, in contrast to the plant, is small and seemingly insignificant. And yet, this worm produced a significant impact upon the great plant to take it down to so that it withered and, and then right after this the sun rises it says when the sun rose God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said it is better for me to die than to live and so we see that that God appoints this great plant and then the next day, Jonah is pleased with the plant, and then immediately the next day, the worm, and then right after the worm, a wind. We have a plant, a worm, and a wind. All different aspects of God's creation, which he uses as object lessons. This, this wind, um, it wasn't just that God made it hotter, but the wind shows an instant change in the environment. Uh, um, Many commentators of the, the Middle East called a, a Sirocco, or a, a, a wind that would come up from the south, um, from Saudi Arabia, from that area, and bringing all this hot air upwards north to where Jonah was, near Nineveh, and just outside Nineveh, and it would increase the temperature in upwards of 20 degrees or, or more. And it was already hot um, because he needed the shade. But this, God not only takes away the shade, but then he makes it even worse. Bringing heat from afar. Changing the, the environment immediately. One commentator, he writes this. He says that God appointed um, a worm and then the scorching east wind. In every one of these instances, first he, he appoints a plant, then he appoints a worm, and then he appoints a scorching east wind. And it says that, this commentator writes, he says, these are the third and fourth uses of the verb appoint. The first time we see in the, in the wind which God hurled upon the sea. God is using his creation to confront Jonah. And this commentator goes on, he says, one of the characteristics of the book of Jonah is its use of the verb 
mana, to appoint, to provide, to prepare. It is used of the fish, the plant, the worm, and the wind. This is not due to lack of stylistic ability, but is intended to stress the divine initiative and sovereignty. God uses both the great fish and the insignificant worm equally as instruments of his purpose. God uses everything at his exposal at his, to, to, to uh, confront Jonah. The small and the great. And it reminds me of, you know, even Nineveh itself. In 1 Samuel 2, 6-7, it says this, The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He appoints kings and he takes them down. He raises up nations and empires and he destroys them. He does whatever he wills. And, and all throughout the book of Jonah, we have seen extremes in, in the, the character and the behaviors of Jonah. And then even in the creation and how God uses the wind and the seas and the, the great fish and now the plant and the worm and the east wind. So, God is using these things, these, these uh, aspects of his creation as object lessons to confront Jonah in his disobedience, to instruct Jonah on the character of God, on his providence. And he does so first in his creation, as we've seen in the plant and the worm and the wind, and now in his question, verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And it's interesting because God, it's a simple question, but it's a perfect question. It's a pointed question. All throughout this book and, and throughout all of Scripture, we, we see God gets the most out of everything. He is efficient in everything He does. And, and just this simple question, He uses it, uses every word in it to confront Jonah. And, and the first thing we see about this question is, is that this is a repeated question. It's a repeated question. It was first asked in, in verse 4 of chapter 4 when when. God said, do you do well to be angry? After Jonah's complaint, after his request to die. And it's interesting as, you know, we think of um, confronting people, exposing sin, counseling, admonishing, encouraging, and our words matter. How we frame questions, how we... uh, confront people, the words we use, they matter. And there, there's a sense of, of an economy, efficiency of our words. Proverbs uh, 25, 11 to 12 says this, that a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. And this is what God is to Jonah. Unfortunately, Jonah 
doesn't necessarily have a listening ear. God is the wise reprover using his question. And this also shows us that, that sometimes people aren't in the right uh, frame of mind to receive instruction, to receive rebuke, to receive correction. And we have to be careful with our words. And we see how, how God is not only careful, he's precise. Not, not that he's, he's, um, he doesn't want to upset Jonah. God isn't too much concerned about upsetting Jonah more. But he wants Jonah to see. He wants Jonah to understand um, how he is wrong. This shows us the benefit of asking the right questions and counseling. And, and there's, I, I've taken um, several counseling classes and, and I, I still have much to learn. And, and even though you learn um, the right thing to do, uh, execution is another story. <laughs> because sometimes in the heat of the moment, you don't do exactly what you, you uh, know to do is right. Um, but your words do matter. And there's several questions that we can ask people um, to understand what's going on in their heart. Such questions as, um, what do you have that you do not want? What do you have that you do not want? Or, or what do you want that you do not have? These are, are questions um, tailored and designed to get to the heart of your frustration of your anger, of your anxiety, of your worries, of your fears. Those questions, what do you have that you do not want, is not just material things, but that could be your circumstances, your situation, your relationships. What do you want that you do not have? That, that's another way to phrase it. What, what sort of situation or circumstance do you want that you don't have? And this is, we could all learn from that because a lot of times we live, at least for me, we live with this, um, this deception of the point of arrival. That if such and such happens in my life, then everything will be all right. And all throughout our lives, we, we think of it as, as teenagers. Oh, once I get my driver's license, oh man, that's then, then I'll have freedom. And then once I get a car, then I'll be able to drive and have a car and go wherever I want. And, and then once I get a job, I'll have money. And then once I graduate from school and, and get out of the house, then there's freedom. But then there's other things. Once I, 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 I'm able to get an education or get a good paying job, a career, then things will, life will start happening. And then, then once I meet that special person and my soulmate, then, oh, life's going to get so much better. But we all know the longer you live, those, those um, illusions, those deceptions of a point of arrival, and, and yes, those, those milestones in life, those blessings in life, they are good. There are good seasons of life and good milestones and, and, and changes in our lives, uh, areas of growth, but they don't deliver everything that, that we thought they would promise. 
there's only one point of arrival, and that's when we get to heaven. Everything else is, is just a, a change of circumstances. It may be better, but it's not going to it's not going to give us everything that we want. There's another question that we could ask in counseling. What are you afraid of most? That could, could get to the heart of, you know, what are you really worshiping? What idol in your heart are you really worshiping? This is, in a sense, what, what God is doing to Jonah. It, it, it reminds me of... Um, you know, one of my counseling classes, and I've shared this with some of you, that um, my professor was teaching us um, uh, the importance of asking the right questions, of asking the right questions at the right time. And he told a story about, you know, one, one of his fellow um, uh, professors and pastors was asked him, reached out to him and said, hey, I need help. I'm struggling with something. There's a sin in my life. I just need help. I need some counsel. I need some accountability. I'm struggling. I've fallen into something. And he's, he says, well, okay, well, come on in. What, what's going on? He's like, well, it's been going on for a couple months now. And every time after work, I go to the store, and there's this ice cream that I get. And... He's like, it's daily. I, it's become an idol in my life. And, and so he's like, he's like, so here's this man in front of me. And he comes to me with this problem. It's become an addiction to him. It doesn't seem on the surface that bad, but it is an addiction. It's become an idol to him. And so now I go to ask a question. And, you know, it's important to ask the right question, but... What question do you think I asked that I shouldn't have asked? <laughs> what flavor is it? <laughs> so what happens to him, now he knows what flavor it is. So after that counseling session, he goes to the store on the way home, and he's going through, and he's just curiosity kills the cat, and he's like, there it is. There's the ice cream. I wonder. And he's like, so he bought it, and he goes home. It was good. It was so good that he started to fall into <laughs> addiction to this ice cream as well. And so the, the whole long, it, it's a funny story, but it gets back to the point of asking the right questions. And there's certain questions that, you don't need to know the answer to. <laughs> and, and there's certain questions you need to ask in counseling that will have that effect to expose the heart and expose exactly what's going on. And this is exactly what God is doing, that he asks the right question in the right way. And not only does, is it the right question in the right way at the right time, but he repeats it. And what's interesting about this question is it's a repeated question, but it's also a heart-probing question. And notice how God doesn't ask Jonah why he is angry or what he is angry about. There's another 
Another verse in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 5, it says this, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. And and certainly God has all understanding, all knowledge, but he comes to Jonah with this perfect question in the perfect time, in the perfect way to draw out of Jonah what exactly is going on in his heart. God asks him, do you do well to be angry? He is essentially asking him, is your anger justified? Is your anger the appropriate response to this situation? I'm not saying what, I'm not asking what are you angry about or why you are angry about, but is your anger justified? Is it the appropriate response? And so, God asks a repeated question, a question twice. He asks a heart-probing question, but this is also a thought-provoking question. God asks a thought-provoking question because God isn't confronting Jonah's anger with his question. He's confronting Jonah's thinking, which produced the anger. The the, the thing about anger is anger has... It's a legal, it has a legal aspect to it. That someone has transgressed a law. Some, someone or some circumstance is not right. There's something that is not right. And so that provokes anger in somebody. And more often than not, the law that is transgressed is our own law. It's our own expectation. It's not God's law because there is an anger that is righteous. There is an anger that is good. And there is a sense that we in this world should be angry. We should be angry about many things. Even the Bible says in Ephesians 5, be angry and do not sin. There's certain things we should be furious about. Like abortion or pedophilia, or a host of many other sins, which God himself is angry about. But God is, with his question, he's confronting Jonah's thinking, which produced this anger, which is not right. God is confronting Jonah's perspective of the situation, and ultimately is confronting Jonah's wrong perspective of himself. God is confronting Jonah's wrong perspective of him, of what he has done in Nineveh, of his providence, of his character, of his his prerogative to do what he wills with his creation. And, And so in this passage, we see God's instruction in three ways. First, his creation, then his question, this this perfect question, perfect time, and now his confrontation. Verses 10 to 11. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? We see how there's a progression here. First, God uses his creation, the, the external elements of the world around Jonah. 
And then he uses this, this question. It's, it's almost indirect in a front, in, 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 in a way. It, it, he doesn't directly come at Jonah and say, you shouldn't be angry. Or, why are you angry? He says, do you do well to be angry? Is your anger justified? And, and then he gets Jonah to think a little bit, and then now he is the direct confrontation in verses 10 to 11. He confronts Jonah, and he confronts Jonah in a few ways. First, he confronts Jonah's focus, that, that Jonah is focused on his circumstances. He's focused on the things around him. He's focused on his perspective of himself and, and his life and his ministry. Jonah's focused on himself. It's all about him. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. It's all about you, Jonah. You, you, you want to determine the parameters and the place and the time of your ministry and your life. You want to determine um, how you will minister, who you will minister to, and what will happen to those you minister to. That's not what ministry is about, Jonah. You, 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 just, you just proclaim what I tell you to. And you go where I tell you to. And I will use you how I determine to use you. And if you're obedient and willing, then uh, you will be happy. Holiness brings happiness. Not our circumstances. Our circumstances change. Always. And we're not in control of our circumstances. Ultimately, we have, a, we have a certain span of control. We do make decisions. We do um, make plans. We do work and, and have actions and, and do things. We have a certain span of control. But ultimately, it's God who's in ultimate, complete control. So God confronts Jonah's focus, his focus on his circumstances, his focus on his perspective of life and ministry, his his self-focus. And, and then he confronts Jonah's heart. In, in confronting him through this, this, uh, this question, this, and, and, and then this statement, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. He confronts what Jonah really cares about. He gets at the idol in Jonah's heart. That Jonah is really all about his comfort. His comfort, not only with the plant and the shade, but then with his ministry, his fame, and his people. Because that's the main sin in Jonah's heart that shows up throughout this book is his partiality, his racism. But that goes back to his pride and the pride of his people and his comfort and his selfishness that he wants to do what he wants to do when he wants to do it where he wants to do it he does want to serve God in a sense but it's almost like he wants to decide the parameters of that so God confronts Jonah's heart and then he confronts Jonah's heart in comparison to his own heart he says, he says, and should not I pity Nineveh? You pity the plant 
which you did not labor for, nor did you make it grow. You didn't do anything for this plant. You didn't water it. You didn't fertilize it. You didn't plant it. It came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And yet, should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What's a plant compared to 120,000 people who are created in the image of God, who have an eternal soul that will go on into eternity somewhere? And then even the cattle. This term, it says cattle, but that's more of a generic term that could be better translated livestock. All the animals. Or or even just animals. God cares about all these creatures. There's a commentator that says this. He says, the divine intention of the object lessons is now revealed. God's magnificent compassion for the people and animals he created and sustained in verse 11 is contrasted with Jonah's petty concern for the plant. The reader recalls the compassion of Jesus as he looked upon the multitudes and his statement in Matthew 10, 29, that not a sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of the Father. This commentator contrasts Jonah's perspective and the lessons he's getting concerning God's compassion with the compassion of Jesus for his creation and for the people that Jesus preached to. But more than that, um, we think of Jesus, um, how he approached a certain city. And, and Jonah should have had this, this outlook, this heart, this compassion which Jesus had. In, in Luke chapter 19, you can turn there, and in Luke chapter 19, we see this heart of Jesus as, as Jesus was going to Jerusalem. This is, how, this is how Jonah should, in a sense, approach Nineveh. He, he did his duty. He obeyed the calling. He proclaimed the message that God gave him. But his heart wasn't all there. He obeyed more out of duty than desire. He didn't have the compassion that he should have went with his message. And in Luke 19, we see a direct contrast to what Jonah did. As, as Jesus goes draws near to Jerusalem in Luke 19 verse 37 it says this as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives this is beginning of Passion Week the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then see this, when when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus was broken over Jerusalem. He was broken Broken enough to, to weep. Saying he, he just wanted them to repent. To 
seek God, to accept God. And then he goes on and he proclaims, in a sense, a similar message to Jonah. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus, he cleaned house, literally. He proclaimed judgment upon Jerusalem. And yet at the same time, he wept over Jerusalem. Jonah proclaimed judgment on Nineveh. They repented, but there was no tears for Nineveh. There was no rejoicing over Nineveh's repentance. There was no thankfulness uh, that God would send him to deliver this message, that God would use him to bring about this great revival, this great repentance. So God confronts Jonah's heart. And, and then he, he confronts Jonah's skewed theology. That, that Jonah thought that the Ninevites don't deserve mercy. That, that, that God was in a sense wrong to show them mercy. That, and this is what in the beginning of, of, of chapter 4, Jonah uses God's character almost against him. It, it says that Jonah in a sense saw this, what had happened, and he saw it as evil. He said that, I knew that you, were, you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He, he, was, he had a skewed theology, even though it was right on, on the surface. He knew who God was, but he twisted it because deep in his heart, he... Didn't, he didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. And he felt that God was wrong to show them mercy. But Jonah, as, as we saw um, throughout this book and saw earlier, that, that Jonah is just, he, he's a symptom of the sickness of Israel. That, that he, he had a skewed theology because he, deep down felt that he and Israel themselves were inherently special. Now, Israel is special. They are God's chosen people. They are very special. But they aren't inherently special. Abraham was a Gentile until God called him. And, and God chose them. He chose to set his love upon them. Them, not because of anything special within them, but just simply because he chose them. And yet, as time would grow and as, as Israel would grow in, in their disobedience and their sin, they, they would still hold on to the fact that they were special, but twisted in such a way that they uh, no longer um, saw themselves as a witness to the other nations or as an example to the other nations of who God is, or, or as um, 
ambassadors to the other nations as um, they were supposed to, um, in a sense, proclaim the character of God in the way they lived and in their words and in their actions. No, they thought that they were better than everybody else. And God, in a sense, sends Jonah to not only uh, save the Ninevites, but to, to almost bring Israel to jealousy as a lesson not only to Jonah, but a lesson to Israel. Patrick Fairburn, Jonah, his life, character, and mission says this concerning Jonah. He says this, Indeed, we cannot but think that this prospective lesson furnished by the transactions at Nineveh in the parable of the gourd, though not the most immediate and direct, was still a very, very prominent object in the divine purposes. There are tides in the history of the world as well as in the private affairs of men. And matters were now approaching a great crisis in that region of the world, which required to be met by a new turn in the outward destination of his church. How the course of providence might have been ordered in respect to the nations of the earth if the Israelites had continued a holy and united people, diffusing light and blessing around. It is not for us now to conjecture, but as it had become too clearly manifest that this was no longer to be expected, the Lord permitted a succession of huge monarchies to arise over which it was in the nature of things impossible for Israel to obtain a political ascendancy or, while standing apart, to exert any important influence. Yet Israel must still be, as God had promised to Abraham, the appointed channel of blessing to the nations. And the question was, how could this calling now be best fulfilled? by maintaining their ancient position in Canaan, they must get somewhere near the helm of affairs and have the opportunity of reaching the springs of action in the world. And this they could only do by being broken up and scattered and to some extent intermingled with the nations. Jonah and Nineveh now, Daniel and his holy comrades in Babylon afterwards, were to serve for signs to Israel of the manner in which the people of God were henceforth to display his banner and influence for his glory the current of events. And this is exactly what God had, in a sense, told his people in Deuteronomy, in the law, that he would, the land would spit them out, and they would be exiled, and they would be spread. But later on, there is the promise that he would gather them back. And there was always the promise that, that he would draw all peoples to himself, that, that the Messiah would be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. And so this is what Jonah is about. This is what God is trying to teach Jonah through his creation, through his question, through his confrontation. And it's interesting how the book of Jonah ends in this confrontation. And and this series, I said that, you know, the book of Jonah, on the surface, the book of Jonah is about a disobedient prophet. We, we know about the fish and, and, and the stories, but on the surface, we see the disobedient prophet, who is a symptom of a disobedient nation and people. But the book of Jonah, it's also about us as disobedient witnesses. Because if we're honest with ourselves, 
we have to see a little bit of ourselves in the life of Jonah. That we don't always do what we're called to do. And we're, we're prone to, to run and hide. We're prone to shrink back from our duties. However, the book is ultimately about God. It's about his character. Because all throughout this narrative, the revival, uh, Jonah's disobedience, everything that happened ultimately points back to God and his character, his mercy, his grace, his concern for his creatures. And the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, that, that he does not desire that anyone would perish, but that all would come to repentance and faith. As God says to Moses in his self his self-definition of himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God is merciful and gracious. He is forgiving. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. But he's also just and holy. And he will punish every sin. And there is that reminder of the call to repent and believe. And Jonah, the book of Jonah kind of ends abruptly. And if you're like me, you probably wonder what happened. What happened to him? Because we just, the book just leaves him there on the east of the city, probably outside on a hill. And we wonder what happened to Jonah. And I like to think, in my mind, I have a proposed ending. It is my own speculation, but based on the call of a prophet and what God did, and some other pastors, they believe that Jonah repented right then when he was confronted, and, and most likely he did. But I like to think that Jonah repented. He came down from that hill. He wandered into the city, and he settled down. And he probably, I, I, I see him, nothing against singles, but I see him as a single guy, and he, he, I'd like to you know, think of it this way, that he probably came down, he repented, he went down, he settled down with the Ninevites, he taught them the law, he taught them how to be obedient, he found some Ninevite girl he married, he settled down, had children, there's a big happy ending, showing God's, not only God's grace and his character, but teaching Jonah that lesson of being gracious and merciful to others, because we are called to be imitators of God. And we won't know until we get to heaven, we can ask Jonah, but I, I liked in my own mind, I, I like to think that Jonah had a happy ending, but we'll see. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the lessons that you give us in this book, how you confront us with this book, and the reminder that this is not just a story. This is history. This is your story written through your people. And that one day 
Those of us who are yours, who belong to you, will not only see Jonah, but we will see all the Ninevites. And there is that warning. As Jesus warned the people in his day, that the Ninevites will rise up in the judgment and condemn those who did not repent because a greater than Jonah came and showed them greater revelation. And we have greater revelation of who you are, of your gospel. So Lord, please help us to live in light of your revelation, of who you are, of your character, of your gospel, of the fact that you save sinners like us. And please guide us and help us to go take that message outward to the nations for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.